Welcome to VoiceOver Work, an audiobook sampler. Where do you listen? Today is September 25th, 2023. Today's episode is the chapter-by-chapter preview of Patrick King's book, The Power of EQ. This book is as practical as a book can be. You'll get techniques to use immediately on the people around you, and you'll suddenly realize how much you've been missing. You'll gain a deep understanding of emotional intelligence and the small signs behind what people are thinking and feeling. Imagine how much more easily you could make friends or befriend business partners if you could analyze them better. Learn more in today's episode, this chapter-by-chapter preview of Patrick King's The Power of EQ. Chapter 1. Cultivating Conversational Intelligence Most of us like to think that we're good people, that we're kind, intelligent, attentive. However, despite the best of intentions, few of us are genuinely good communicators, and it's a rare person who never finds themselves misunderstood, alienated, or even in full-blown conflict. This book is about developing the skills and insights needed to be one of those rare few who are experts at dialogue, emotions, and empathy. That said, the emotional intelligence we'll be discussing in this book is not some quiet, private thing that you develop purely for your own use. In that sense, it's not really personal development. Rather, we'll see that emotional intelligence is about how you develop yourself in relation to others. In just the same way as general intelligence makes itself manifest in the world through accomplishment, creativity, learning, or understanding, emotional intelligence is also something we do rather than something we are. And the primary way that we express and develop our emotional intelligence is with other people. In the chapters that follow, we'll look at how emotional intelligence helps us listen to others, consider their perspectives, read their verbal and nonverbal expressions, ask questions, identify a wide range of subtle emotions, put boundaries in place without breaking rapport, and speak with clarity, conviction, and compassion. When developing emotional regulation, self-awareness, and masterful communication skills, every person we encounter becomes our teacher, and every interaction becomes a chance to learn and grow as an emotionally intelligent social being. Let's dive in and begin at the most natural starting point, learning how to listen. Empathic Listening and Responding We live in a noisy, distracted world where everyone is trying to make themselves heard. Empathic listening is, sadly, underdeveloped. This is the kind of listening that puts total, genuine attention on the other person and the message they are trying to convey. If we're honest, many of us try to merely give the impression of paying attention to someone, or play the role of a good listener without really being one. Can you think of the last time you sat in someone's presence and gave them your full attention? It takes effort not to constantly think of what you'll say next, not to interrupt, not to rush in with your own opinions, experiences, arguments, perceptions. 
not only does it take effort, but it comes with a certain degree of risk. It may seem counterintuitive, but authentic listening opens up a space of vulnerability for the listener, too. Setting aside your own point of view and your own idea of where the conversation should go is an act of faith and a show of goodwill to the other person. The modern world does not encourage the kind of receptivity that makes us great conversationalists. If we're honest, most of us would prefer not to do the work and rather focus on controlling the conversation, expressing ourselves, or making some point or other. To be emotionally intelligent listeners, we need to go against the grain and make the effort required to set aside our own egos and become genuinely curious about someone else's world. Here are a few key principles to keep in mind. Principle 1. Listen to understand. Chapter 2. Perspective as the foundation of empathy. In this chapter, let's go further into the question of empathy and explore exactly how we can become more compassionate, understanding people. Which perceptual position are you in? Let's begin by asking, what is empathy anyway? One dictionary definition says that empathy is the ability to share someone else's feelings or experiences by imagining what it would be like to be in that person's situation. A key word there is imagining. The big idea is that if you can look at something from someone else's point of view, then you can conceive of how they must feel and what they might be thinking. This cannot be done, however, if we don't possess the imagination needed to think outside of our own perceptual limitations and look into someone else's world. The idea of perceptual positions comes from NLP, or Neuro Linguistic Programming. It's a framework that not only helps us improve our communication, it can also give us the tools to navigate conflict and work through difficult situations so that you come out on top. In this model, it's possible for a person to look at any interaction through three different lenses, called first, second, and third perceptual positions. First position is your own viewpoint. The most natural and obvious position to inhabit, this is the place where you're in touch with and aware of your own thoughts and feelings. However, it can be a limited position, especially if you are unable to ever leave it. Second position is the other person's viewpoint, that is, walking in their shoes. In this position, you're not trying to look at another person's world as you would see it, but as they would see it. You're trying to put yourself into their perception to better understand their thoughts and feelings from the inside rather than from first position. This is not quite the same as mind reading or being a so-called empath, but it is expanding your field of awareness and perception to include the possibility of a different perspective from your own. Third position is the neutral, detached observer's viewpoint. When you occupy this position, you're seeing both yourself and the other person from a third perspective. You can think of this as a bystander or an uninvolved journalist type who's seeing the facts as they are, without any personal investment either way. 
This broader view also lets you see the interaction as a whole, and perhaps part of a bigger system, and not merely one person's view versus the other's. In looking at this zoomed-out perspective, you may see cause and effect relationships that are otherwise hidden. So what's the point of knowing about these three different perceptual positions? From the NLP point of view, this framework is about obtaining additional information. Getting to see different aspects on a difficult situation can bring you closer to resolving it or finding creative solutions. By understanding that perception is not reality and that other people are inhabiting perceptions that are completely different from yours, you get a 360-degree view on a situation that you might have missed if you insisted on clinging to your own narrower version of events. If you or someone else is consistently trapped in their own first position and all the stories and associations that go with it. Chapter 3. Taking Charge of Your Meta-Language Many of us are fascinated with the art of reading body language and gauging people's secret feelings by looking at, say, the position of their feet or the slight twitch of their left eyebrow. Before we can become adept at reading other people's nonverbal and often hidden communication, though, we need to thoroughly understand our own. Mindful, nonverbal communication. If what we're saying verbally doesn't align with what we're saying nonverbally, we're likely to send a garbled or confused message. Even if the mismatch is slight, our listeners will unconsciously feel the disconnect, and this may result in our message being lost in translation. People thinking that we're insincere, hard to understand, or concealing something. Full-on misunderstandings, as people respond to one message and not the other. Oh, I thought you meant... Imagine that there are always these two conversations, verbal and nonverbal, running parallel to one another in every conversation. Author Nick Morgan describes, in his book Power Cues, how we can deliberately bring the second nonverbal level out of the shadows and into conscious awareness. When we're mindful of the way we're moving our bodies, using our voices, placing our eye contact, and so on, then we can ensure that the two channels of communication are in sync. Then we'll come across as clear, strong, trustworthy, friendly, and solid. To dig deeper, Let's consider the way that nonverbal communication actually functions in the world. Typically, according to Morgan, it has five distinct roles. Repetition. By confirming and repeating the verbal message, your nonverbal communication confirms your overall message and makes it appear stronger. Contradict yourself, however, and it's as though you're splitting up the force of your message and making it weak. An easy example, you say no to enforce a boundary, but you say it while cowering and with a slight fearful expression, your voice making the statement into more of a question, more of a request for permission to say no. Your verbal communication says one thing, no, and your nonverbal communication says another, I don't know, maybe. What do you think? If you say no in a firm voice, Paired with firm, assertive body language, that no becomes stronger. 
substitution. You can say something non-verbally instead of verbally. You see someone walk down the road in a ridiculous outfit, and you turn to your friend and quickly raise a single eyebrow. That single gesture stands in for a whole world of verbal communication. Complimenting. Related to, but a little different from repetition, this is where we send a nonverbal message that adds a little something extra to our verbal communication. For example, we may be breaking bad news in a professional setting, but near the end of the meeting, we give the other person a quick, friendly squeeze on the arm. The verbal message may be, I regret to inform you, but the nonverbal message adds a little extra. It may not even be possible to put into words, but the person is saying that beyond the professional setting, they care and are showing some tactile human warmth and encouragement for the situation. Chapter 4. Becoming Emotionally Intelligent In the previous chapters, we looked at ways to be better conversationalists, how to cultivate real empathy and perspective, and how to become more mindful of meta-language, your own and other people's. Becoming more emotionally intelligent requires that we also have a sophisticated understanding of what emotions actually are, how to read them, how to feel and label our own experiences, and how to validate them in the people around us. Many people mistakenly think they are emotionally skilled when they're really just emotional. However, having emotions and developing emotional mastery are two very different things. It's a little like the difference between every human possessing a heart that can pump blood, whereas only a few humans are trained cardiologists who understand exactly how that heart works and how to fix it when it goes wrong. In other words, emotional intelligence is seldom a skill we automatically possess, but something we need to consciously develop. If we can, however, it can completely supercharge our ability to connect with others and put our communication skills on the next level. The Emotions Wheel and Learning to Label Daniel Goleman, the author of Emotional Intelligence, claims that so-called EQ is actually a collection of four separate skills. 1. Empathy 2. Social Skills 3. Self-Awareness 4. Self-control. We've looked at empathy and social skills, and now we can consider the third skill, self-awareness, and how to use the emotion wheel to strengthen it. The emotion wheel is a tool that asks you to dig a little deeper beneath surface experiences, whether they're your own or other people's. It's a way to fine-tune our emotional literacy and get a richer and more nuanced understanding of the rich palette of possible emotions, according to Goleman and many biologists and evolutionary psychologists, there are only a few basic emotions, sadness, disgust, happiness, anger, surprise, and fear. These experiences are so universal that other animals experiencing them too, and it's unsurprising since they relate directly to our survival and speak to our most fundamental experiences of being alive. Think of these emotions like primary colors. There may be a few disagreements about exactly how many there are, 
but most of us can agree that these cover the bases, but, of course, not always as simple as this. In the center of the emotion wheel are the primary emotions, but these can vary in intensity. The closer to the center of the wheel, the stronger the emotion, and the further out, the weaker. So, when describing how you feel in an utterly terrifying situation, you might say horrified, frightened, or scared. Dialing this emotion down, however, gives us subtler feelings like anxious, rejected, or threatened, even further out on the wheel, and we get subdivisions of these feelings. For example, rejected can branch off into excluded or persecuted. Different versions of the emotion wheel exist, and some of them capture the fact that we can experience a blend of adjacent emotions. Just as the colors on a color wheel blend into one another seamlessly, and blue-green exists between blue and green. Chapter 5. Own Your Limits It's probably fair to say that for many of us, the biggest impediment to better communication is a lack of emotional awareness and connection. When we increase our empathy, emotional literacy, and ability to communicate, both verbally and non-verbally, our relationships with others improve. However, human beings are complex, and not all problems and conflicts can be solved by simply heaping on more and more empathy and understanding. The other side of the emotional intelligence coin is knowing what to do when resources are limited, people have conflicting needs and goals, and behavior is not as good as it could be. In this chapter, we'll look at how to master the art of boundaries, setting your own, and respecting those of others. How to Create Healthy Boundaries First things first, not all boundaries are healthy ones. We may be over- or under-boundaried, or we may be guilty of violating the boundaries of someone else. If you are too rigid, stubborn, or inflexible in asserting your needs and limits, you limit emotional connection with others and may make things difficult for those around you. On the other hand, if your boundaries are too loose, too ill-defined, or permeable, or you don't have any at all, then you risk overextending yourself, becoming a doormat, or even opening yourself to abuse, manipulation, and disrespect. The best boundary to have, then, is a balanced one that asserts your needs, defends your limits, and yet also respects and considers the needs and limits of the people around you. Another thing to remember is that even though a boundary once set should be respected, it can change over time. That's because our needs and limits change. All the more reason to have self-knowledge and the ability to communicate clearly with others. Finding your own sweet spot of assertiveness takes practice and effort, but it can be learned. Knowing who you are, what you want, what you don't want, and exactly how to say so is a big part of emotional intelligence. When you can take charge of yourself, own your limits, and clearly and confidently let people know who you are, your self-respect will tend to inspire the respect of others. How to Set Boundaries Step 1. Know Thyself The thing about your boundaries is that they're yours. 
nobody can tell you what they are or should be. This means that you have some work to do. There are two possibilities. First, you could use an uncomfortable or unpleasant current situation to help you identify any areas that need stronger or clearer boundaries. Use the emotion wheel above, or sit with a journal to help you crystallize what's gone wrong and why. Ask yourself, what exactly is causing my discomfort? Be as specific as possible, identifying actual behaviors. Is there any activity, event, or person I'm dreading? Why? What happened immediately before I started to feel bad? If I could rewind recent events, where would I hit the pause switch to make sure I didn't end up feeling that way again? If other people's behaviors and expectations were not part of the picture, what would I choose to do here? By exploring how you feel and imagining what alternatives would look like, you can begin to shape...